Hello, welcome to the Real Work Podcast with me, Fleur Emery. Unedited conversations with women who are changing up the world of work. Extraordinary women who are founders, thought leaders or trailblazers. Here to inspire and inform your idea of what's possible for you. This week's Real Work podcast is sponsored by Sally Farrant, also known as the Pricing Queen. Coming from 25 years of accounting and business, she now helps small businesses and freelancers to get to grips with their numbers and pricing. Sally's on a mission to get you to understand your numbers to grow your business and is jargon free. She has a super podcast also called The Pricing Queen, which I really enjoy. It's engaging as well as expert. And she has a long track record of helping women to negotiate pricing with real confidence. As you can hear, I'm a big fan and I'm also going to be a guest on her podcast soon, which is exciting. And haven't you done some work with Sally Buckers? Yeah, I've done a couple of Sally's masterclasses, um, which are, I have to say, brilliant. They're not too long. She cuts all the waffle um, and she's just got really kind of practical tips on how to actually price your services um, which has been really, really helpful for me. It's it's such a common problem. It's such a common problem with women. And there's data to back up the fact that, you know, men are more confident asking for more and women just aren't. So she's fixing a real problem, in my opinion. Mm. Good to hear. Yeah. I've, I don't know if this is the right time to say this, but I've actually been meaning to have a, have a, a chat with you about um, my mm. pricing with with you. What, I mean, what we, you can mean? Do that, we can do well, that another time. I mean, it doesn't need to be now. Obviously. What, you mean how much I pay for your pr- production on this podcast? Yes, that. That's the thing I was going to talk to you about. About Ray's? Yes. Yes. Well, okay, well. It's just that Sally says, um, you know, that you should be confident and, you know. I'm Sally said that. Practice. Yeah, Sally said that to so, me. Personally. Okay, well, um, let's um, let's speak. Um, you know, let let's put that in the diary, and um, I'll call Sally. Yeah, yeah, great. This week's guest on the Real Work podcast is Hannah Philp, and she's the founder of the Arc Club, which is a um, a co working space in Homerton, which takes a a really refreshing modern approach to um, the future of work, and and. The third, you know, working not at home, not at the office, but somewhere else. Where do you work? She's had an interesting career. She started working in corporate fundraising and then she moved into um, community charity work in the East End of London, sort of went deep with that. And now, yes, she's founder of The Arc, a business which is new but growing. Here's Hannah. We, Hannah, Hannah, we are recording a podcast. Yes. <laughs> we did it. We managed to get there. Taken, Thank you, How Buckers. many weeks? How, how many weeks has it taken um, to sort out? We've had months? physical problems. We've had months? post problems. We've had oh, tech problems, setup problems. The pandemic won't stop us, though. A pandemic or no, no. It, won't, it won't. And then I wanted to do a surprise visit. 
when I was in London last week, but unfortunately I was savagely stood up by a man who I'd projected on wildly and thought was my future husband. A disappointing man. Sadly not. Well, I don't think, I mean, I don't know on reflection, I don't think he did anything wrong. I think he just, I wanted to get to know him and then I got to know him. Yeah. (laughs) There you are. Okay, that's good. Inquiry, keep that line of inquiry. Exactly. Isn't that what life's about? It's just like, say, wow, what was I expecting to happen? No, it's about blaming people for upsetting you. (laughs) No, 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 no. No one's to blame, are they? They just do things. This is is an age difference because Buckers is a millennial. And so are you a cancellor? Do you cancel people? Are you a cancel culture person? I don't don't like the cancelling myself. No. 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 I do. I believe people have second, second and third chances. Fourth, no. I've had I've had zillions. I agree, but there's a bit of an imbalance, isn't there? Some people get five chances, don't they? Like structurally, there are certain people in the world. Oh my... Maybe our prime minister being one of them. That sort Hang of on is a not I think held... Hannah's moved on to privilege in yeah. minute three. In minute three, I know, but it, but it is like that, isn't it? Like cancel culture is like it's not nice, is it? When it's used as a kind of. Uh, instead of something, I don't know, when it's used in a toxic way, but it is like, it has helped create more accountability for certain groups of people that maybe weren't held accountable before. What do you think? I think, I liked your first point, saying that people like Boris Johnson um, are not cancelled. More, more bullets, yeah, they dodge more bullets. Like, look at Matt Hancock. Yeah. He's just dropped so many balls and just keeps doing that government politician thing. Either party do it, actually. So this yeah. isn't an anti-Tory rant of just coming out saying <laughs> they just lose the football match and they come out and they just say, we're the winners. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and everyone just kind of goes It's like, like are that. we being gaslighted here? Because that's what it feels like. It is a bit like. gaslighty, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It is they a just bit. say that they've done something, yeah, which they haven't. And everyone's kind of quite confused. The emperor's new clothes, or something. It's a bit like that. So this is a this is the politics podcast. We've gone in deep. <laughs> let's anyone... no, let's let's just talk about business. <laughs> or Jackie potatoes. That's the ones where we end up talking about Jackie potatoes when we get the most listeners. <laughs> I love Jackie potatoes. So I've got a story about Jackie potatoes. My friend, Yay! my friend Leanne. <laughs> Uh, who is an amazing businesswoman? Actually, runs uh, runs a company, an organisation called, called the Institute of Digital Digital Fashion. But she's got, I think, her baby's like three month, three and a half months, four months old. And Leanne's beautiful, like six foot two, looks like a supermodel. She's like a superstar, a bit of an it girl, I guess. And when she was the day that the day before her baby was born. Her and I were sending one another voice memos about jacket potatoes because we both, she had a massive craving just before having her baby. And we were saying about the dream jacket potato, what is the dream topping? And her baby looks exactly like a jacket potato. So we say that we basically (laughs) manifested a jacket potato. And she's like this super glamorous woman. Walking around with a very, very cute baby, but the baby does look I like think a jacket potato. You could do potato. an online course about that. You could do an online course about that. Still perfect jacket potato. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, I think it could be £227. Yeah. Um, but only five spots available. Book up now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd book there up. There you go. So, 
Tell us about your work before ARC. Pre-ARC, what was Hannah's life like? Um, it was, I, had, I was doing a corporate job for about 10 years. I worked in financial services. My last role was um, the director of marketing for a FTSE 250 investment company. Buckers doesn't know what that is. So about it, huh? Yeah, not many, not many people do know <laughs> what it is actually. So, an investment company is uh, the best way to describe it is if you're thinking about how you want to save money, right? You want to invest it in certain things that is going to make a return or make that money grow more than inflation. So if you just leave the money in the bank, like one pound today is going to be worth, like it's going to buy you less in 20 years if inflation it's going to buy continues. you less jacket potatoes yeah it's going to buy you less jacket potatoes so just make it all as a jacket potato analogy and then you will really you'll really keep her attention. exactly and but if you're really rich you can buy up bits of lots of different companies like you could buy and shares then you get the and beans and cheese in return apple and things yeah and you get more more money back so yeah but if you don't have as much money it's more difficult to diversify. So say you've just got five pounds to invest somewhere. You don't really want to invest just in one company because if that company does badly, you can't really control it. So what investment companies do is you can invest in them and buy one share in them, but they in turn then invest maybe in like a hundred different companies. So your one share is then buying a hundred different companies. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a sort of um, clever way of, saving money basically over the longer term um but the culture of it it's like the part of the asset management industry a very old school very kind of british industry and a british sort of institution um and i really yeah i liked it but i always knew i wanted to be doing something else and alongside it i did quite a bit of community work in Hackney, I set up something called the East London Fawcett Group, which was the East London group that was linked to the Fawcett Society, which is the leading campaign for equality between men and women in the UK. And we used to organize events and we had a partnership with Soho House Group and others to organize events focused on finding out what other thing, what are the barriers to like women in their careers or in specific industries. And we did a lot around women in the arts. And then for two years, I ran an art auction that raised over £100,000 for small charities that support very marginalised women in the UK. Um, and so, yeah, it was, uh, I was, I suppose, tiring. much more, it was tiring, yeah. I mean, I couldn't do it now, um, but I had more energy in my 20s. And that's so I spent it. So I have um, done some, brackets, limited research for this um, podcast, and when you talk about that, and I don't know what the force of society is, so I'm going to out myself as an unprepared interviewer. How did you know about them? Um, Sounds interesting. How did I know about them? I think it was... Leading charity campaigning for gender equality to intervention on gender stereotypes. This sounds right up my alley. I wish I... It is. But the reason you might not know about them is they're not necessarily coordinating like um, community-based stuff. So... They're really focused on lobbying the government, on lobbying policy, and they're very effective like that, which is why they wanted to establish um, local groups that would be more engaged in kind of building more a cohort of people that could get involved and support and feel active and feel part of the kind of movement around it. So the East London group ended up being the biggest and most high profile group in the country for them, which was really fun and did it with a group of women, all voluntary but yeah, we had a lot of fun doing that and running that for about five years. That sounds an amazing thing to do. 
and so different from the male dominated investing in in things so that you can get a golden jacket potato <laughs> exactly i think that was the Fabergé. counterbalance wasn't it yeah do Fabergé do jacket potatoes and that's a good <laughs> they should it's a good yeah product diamond encrusted <laughs> diamond encrusted um yeah i'm not at that level i'd what level are we? Maybe the Pandora, Pandora jacket potato. Is it? When are they? Such- Elizabeth Duke. <laughs> Claire's accessories. You had a corporate career though, didn't you? Before you became very, very creative and entrepreneurial, or were you always? Well, that's very. I mean, I, I'm tempted to just nod and say yes, I did to get the kudos from that, but I don't think. I mean, I don't think it's an accurate way to describe. First of all, career. I don't. <laughs> I can't say it was a career. When I graduated, I worked, actually, I worked in a charity. I worked in Centrepoint, the homeless charity, and loved it. I worked in a direct access hostel in King's Cross with young homeless people, um, which was chaos, but also beautiful and wild and amazing. Learned a lot about myself and about life and about the sex industry. Um, And it was really tiring and quite traumatic. And PTSD and all that stuff wasn't really a word then. So everyone just, you just kind of worked in it until you couldn't anymore. So when I couldn't, I thought, oh, wow, all the um, all my friends from school are like engaged and live in Clapham and have um, Volkswagens. So how do you get one of those? And I did that round of like trying to work for banks and I worked for West Westerby, a couple of German investment banks. And I worked for each of them for about two months, which is how long it took them to get to know me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it was not, it was not a good match. No? It's so why not? No. Because I think my you see what I learned from my my working life and you know in real work you can see it all the time is that you know I don't believe you're either an entrepreneur or not. Like I don't think it's binary, but certainly um entrepreneurial people, people with that bent, they want to know the whole picture. <laughs> I want, you know, I want my fingers in pies. And in a company like that. You know, I was in a German investment bank in a huge, huge meeting with the entire floor and all that. There's a big excitement, a riffle of excitement because the boss of the whole floor is going to turn up and we'd all pay attention. And he started talking this kind of, um, you know, this kind of um, rousing speech and everyone was sort of having that. I don't even know what they're talking about. Anyway, I put my hand up and you're not supposed to because I was like the junior, I was like entry level. And I said something like, what does this company actually do? Like, why, why are we here? <laughs> like, and I'd say things like, how do you feel about that? It doesn't go down well. No. It was like, get You were her. challenging, challenging the structure. Yeah, there's certain questions. And I didn't even know. It's like, because you're all, you're given your job, aren't you? You're given your piece of the work mm-hmm. and you're told, follow this process, deliver this work, report to me on this day. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't ask questions about the larger picture about why we're here who's benefiting who's not who's in the room who's not all of the things that were interesting to me about that stuff why do I care about why should I care about this Mm. you know who is it for who am I serving all of those things that I've learned to understand are the things that you know their entrepreneurial tendencies none of those I I used to think if I I could make I could do my work a different way and make it better and that they'd be pleased with me. Yeah. But they weren't. They just wanted me to do it their way. Yeah. And I really couldn't get my head around that. It was just didn't make sense. 
No. And I guess there's too many people making too much money to question the system. Maybe. I what well, I wasn't. You weren't. No. So hence why no. you were able to question it. You don't really do hierarchy <laughs> as well, do you, Fleur? I don't think. I just don't really respect hierarchy. I just don't really, I don't really I get it. It's not yeah. that I'm particular, you know. But banks I, uh, have to be structured around hierarchy. But again, Hannah, that brings us back to what we were saying at the beginning about privilege. Because mm-hmm. what I'm learning, I used to think that my non-respect of hierarchy was because I was a maverick and that's a great thing and I'm so free. But actually it's because I grew up in with a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, you know, listened to and I had a voice and I had... And I and I, Definitely. you know, had a great education and a lot of freedom, and so I felt like I have a place in the room, like I could walk Definitely. in anywhere. You don't have an so, inferiority complex. You just feel no. everyone's equal. And so I, yeah, I don't. So so yeah, I I I didn't understand equality from the point of view of someone non-privileged until recently, and it's been like. Um, you know, all of us in real work, all doing, the, all doing the sort of work at the moment, kind of collectively looking at this stuff. And it, it's been literally like the needle off the record, hasn't it, Because it's been like, yeah. <laughs> oh, the world isn't how I thought it was. It's been, mm-hmm. it's been quite different. And how did you move from being able to function so well in those organisations to being able to just be your own boss? How did that transition work for you? Probably not a smooth transition. I wouldn't necessarily say I functioned so well in those environments. I think I always felt like a bit of an outsider or a bit of a fraud. I didn't ever feel like I could bring my whole self to work, which is interesting because now I do still have a corporate role. I'm on the board of um, an investment company that's managed by JP Morgan. Uh, The assets are managed by JP Morgan. And um, I... I think I might be the youngest UK director of an investment company board, but I feel like finally I can like in that role be my whole self. Whereas I definitely didn't feel like I could before. I felt like my office was in West London. I lived in East London. When I put my suit on and went to work, I was like a different Hannah. And I think that that's quite unsustainable and it can be quite exhausting as well, can't it? And so when I started, um, when I left my job to set up a company, which is now art club and neighborhood workplace kind of in sort of a real estate industry and hospitality industry. It was thinking, uh, well, first of all, there was a, like a massive learning curve probably for about, you know, I mean, it's ongoing, isn't it? But I think I didn't really know what I was doing or how to do it. And, and it's taken a long time to establish the structures to be your own boss, I think, and the confidence as well to know that, how you're spending your time is right and what you're focused on is right when no one's telling you how to do it, how to do things. The art club has, was that something that you'd planned for a long time or did you just see a property and say like, wow, let's do it? Um, no, that would have been a sensible way to do things. And I bet that's how you would probably do things flow. You would spot I'm an not, opportunity I'm not, I'm not and sensible, do it. I think definitely. <laughs> you know, that's, I definitely, yeah, I see something and I just think, yeah, let's do it. I mean, and I do it very quickly, like yeah. in a couple of, in a couple yeah, of right in there like hours. A, like a rat up a like a rat up a drain pipe <laughs> i think it was um well first of all i probably made the mistake initially of thinking of an idea that i wanted to create and sort of wanting to work on that whereas the transition over the last couple of years and since meeting my business partner who's 
uh, an architect and the creative director of the company, the two of us have thought about how rather than being kind of led by our own instincts and ideas of what we're creating, it's more like, what does the world need? What do our customers need? What do they want? What do they like? And restructuring and reframing that. So I did have an idea sort of of what I wanted to do, but I actually, when I quit my job um, in financial services, I was thinking I just want to take some time out, maybe even just like a year out to work on some not-for-profit projects. And I'd saved up some money and I'd managed to buy a flat and I was kind of, you know, didn't need, um, I, I wasn't going for the Volkswagen and the big house in Clapham at the time. So I had uh, more kind of flexibility, I think, to do, um, to kind of create some freedom and some space for myself. But then my boss insisted that I say where I was going and what I was doing in the kind of press release that was going to be announced that I was leaving. So I was like, oh, well, I'm going to do, um, uh, create a workplace, create a workspace. And I just sort of came up with it because it was like one idea in my head. And then actually I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm leaving to create a sort of neighborhood workspace type place where like parents can go and work um instead of having to work from home when they don't want to go to the office and i came up with this kind of loose thing this loose idea i had no business plan nothing didn't hadn't really done any research but it was like one idea in my head that then because i'd said it to him i then had to start working on it this is called um throwing your hat over the wall yes okay i like that yeah 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 so it's like the idea that you take your cap off in your school uniform, chuck this is we're back, but this probably comes from Eton or somewhere like this, this expression. Um, you chuck it over the wall and buy it, you know, if you've done that, you have to climb over the wall and get yeah. it. So like if you're thinking about climbing over the wall, chuck your cap over and then it's too late because you can't go home without your I cap. I'm such a massive believer in that, yeah, in that approach. I mean that's that is how you create discipline, isn't it? For yourself. If you don't have if you don't have a framework and you don't, you know, that's how you create your own personal accountability, isn't it? You say to somebody, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and then you're too embarrassed not to do it. And interestingly, in smaller projects, I mean, yours is bricks and mortar and it needs planning. But in um, more virtual projects, you can, there's, there's been a trend in the, in the pandemic with online selling specifically of, doing it as a way to gauge customer interest. So pre-selling and just saying, okay, look, I'm going to do this thing and buy it here and sell it before it exists. I love selling things that don't exist already. <laughs> like that's just like the ninja level of what you're talking about. It's really exciting because then, yeah, you literally have to do it. You have to create it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right that we don't in this business because it is bricks and mortar. We don't have the opportunity necessary to pre-sell and we did sort of try to do something like that but I think what we had to do was create a pilot site and figure out how people were using the space yes. what they needed and then you know we can define the product more easily it was very difficult to define the product because it is it's a product that actually doesn't really exist like there aren't any really like there's cafes and they're kind of independent co-working spaces and stuff like that but this as a product doesn't really exist so we were like right we've got to just create one and test it to the max in every way. There's been such an interesting progression in your industry. In my era, um, when I was starting out in business, the a Shoreditch house was kind of new and very exciting and getting a membership there, and it was still quite cruddy and decrepit inside. And also, there was a lot of interesting people there. And so that was kind of our equivalent. And then 
that whole business became more shishi and more about socializing and less about working. And they kept telling you off for working in certain bits of it. So they were, you know, giving, especially in Soho House, so they had this strong message that kind of, this is a place to schmooze. It was a schmoozing place. And there's a sort of, I felt like there was a generational difference because those places were populated by a lot of people who are a bit older than me. I'm 48, sort of five or 10 years older than me who'd made a lot of money in the 90s on tango commercials, had Land Rovers, second homes, kids in private school, very chunky jewellery on the whole. (laughs) The the men had very chunky jewellery. And, um, yeah, didn't look... They weren't weren't the healthiest bunch. They weren't the healthiest bunch. Yeah, as you can hear, there's a a slight hangover of resentment against all those people who hoovered up those huge budgets before all um, my generation, who are quite talented, could get there. There was them sort of propping up the bar. And then there was me and the sort of people who came behind me didn't work like that, you know, worked in a different way. And a co-working space is just a lot more appetite for kind of the next load of people coming in because we were a more sober bunch and we had to work harder because the economy had changed and we had to sort of be more focused. And also we were more agile. So we weren't going back to the office because there wasn't an office. (laughs) And we became more remote and more connected. And then the WeWork um, monolith appeared, (laughs) megalith, megathon, megaphone. And um, do you know much about the WeWork story, Buckers? Uh, not a, not a clue. Okay, so WeWork was a company that solved this problem, and um, it made co-working spaces. But what's kind of in, it's American. What's kind of interesting about it is um, they had so many that really they became almost like a landlord, didn't they? They did, but I think what they were targeting was a really specific new generation of, like you say, business people who were tech entrepreneurs. There was a very specific and quite homogenous culture across this kind of startup, this like Silicon Valley idealized like male tech entrepreneur who was going to one day pay for a desk, but then in two months time was going to need an office with six people. And then in 12 months time was going to suddenly need a whole floor with 200 people. Oh, right. So that's the premise. That's the premise it was built on was the speed with which these things kind of exactly. Like- And the idea was like, this is an office for people who are ambitious, who are like um, doing the work of their dreams, who are throwing everything into, you know, who are raising loads of VC money or who want to do that and who are going to scale a business quickly and come up with the next Apple or something. But, and then alongside that, there would be people who maybe had more corporate jobs or worked for like, there would be departments of like a big bank, a national bank or something that would want to take a floor to be a part of this kind of culture, this like fast growth innovation culture. Um, But it's not, um, and you know, they really tapped into something and there were some structural problems with the business and some governance issues and, and some internal cultural challenges, which meant that, yeah, they, you know, sort of blew up in a sense and now they're making their way back um on track but i think that in the case of we work um it was really tapping into yeah a new generation of business people and but it was quite a specific group and it was and maybe slightly in a way that i suppose the way that arc's doing things differently is I, I think that we're looking at how do you um rather than 
support people doing the work of their dreams and big up their kind of ambition and stuff like that how do you support people to do the work of their dreams but also um live a kind of productive life with fewer compromises because i think not everybody can commit to growing a company and working 150 hours a week yeah and like having this insane experience and i think also there's a lot of people that might walk into a we work and not really feel like they belong there or like they can't really identify with this like silicon valley white male ultra privileged like entrepreneur who's like super confident and backs himself and is just throwing everything into that and kind of, you know, maybe swigging vodka in a ball meeting or something like that. I think this is like, um, there's a new, I think there is a new, just when you're talking about the evolution of workflow, I think there is like a new way that people are working. And particularly, I think if people have had children or they've developed side projects or they're kind of living, I guess, more holistically, they sort of want to think about work and do work as productively and easily and quickly as possible, but without maybe so much of the bullshit around it. Like they don't necessarily have seven hours to spend propping up the bar at Soho House Um, and schmoozing somebody. Instead, maybe they want to go to an art club which is at the end of their street for four hours and get their emails done in a really nice like relaxed atmosphere and feel kind of good about it after and have it done and then be able to like go and pick their kids up to go swimming or head into town to have an afternoon of meetings or something but it's more about like building your kind of working life around your life and around and you know setting priorities that don't necessarily just have to be this one sort of huge big ambitious uh yeah idea it's the same it's really aligned with the the mission of real work the mission of real work that has kind of emerged is this idea of um you know your work your way and that's different the idea that it's different for everyone and that when i was in my first business you know i had a rent controlled flat i had very small overheads i had a lot to prove because i'd just been failing in the city for a couple of years and then playing poker in in a basement for a year and then and it was like um, I was just worked all the time. I was awake, and I and I was so I loved it. I loved it. Wasn't Silicon Valley? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, um, but the same, you know, the same kind of thing. I was influenced by that culture at that point. I thought that's what success looked like. And I had men saying to me, you know, you got unless you're clocking up a hundred hour weeks, you know, consistently, you're just not going to make it. You're not going to exit. That was kind of who was influencing me at the time. And now, you know, that's utterly changed. And I just work school hours and I, you know, do a Zoom meeting in the garden and, you know, just completely changed. And I think, you know, I'm not alone. I think that's a very, there's a lot of people who have followed that arc of like um, making life more um, streamlined, cheaper, easier. Totally. And work as well, it sits within your life, but maybe also you really care about being able to go surfing as much as possible. Or like, you know, there's different priorities. And I think that that's okay. And it also, I mean, we've had this conversation before. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be any less good at your job or any less productive or even reduce the output. That's something that's, that's, that's such a lovely message to transmit. The idea that um, all of that stuff you, you were told that, you know, I am work, my work is better than you and I'm going to be more successful for you because I'm drinking more coffee and I'm at my desk longer. I came in first, I leave last. That's not Mm -mm. true. That's not true. Mm -mm. And, especially as women 
especially as women, you know, getting up and doing the same workout every morning, come what, you know, it just doesn't, that just, I don't see that leading to the great results. The really good results are when women are, are, are resting and tuning into what's right and, you know, and, and listening and collaborating. It's kind of, um, it's like Tai Chi more than Karate. Yeah, and it's also like a marathon. Well, I've got a, a business coach who's brilliant, and he's always saying to me, "Is this a marathon or is this a sprint?" He's like, "It doesn't matter if you have a week where maybe you're at your computer fifty percent less than you normally are on your laptop, and you're just walking around, and maybe you're catching up with people on the phone, or maybe you're even just like reading and thinking about things and like problem solving and kind of assimilating stuff and thinking about strategy and answers come to you." in a different way than when you are like... Yes, they do. And you connect with much better answers and much better solutions. I, I took a week off last week to um, to um, be stood up on my birthday. And um, around that time... <laughs> he's not listening. I just think, oh, I can say that, you know, just like, yeah, get my revenge. He's not going to listen. He just, he's not thinking about me. We know that. Um, Avoidant. They... Um... <laughs> Just not, just wasn't bothered, and I just made the whole thing up in my head. <laughs> I hope it's not um, put you off dating. No, 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 no. I don't get put off anything. Just bounce back. Just, oh, just although actually process it and try and do it differently. Yeah. What would you do like, different? I think that the good, that just um, just about um, confusing um, sexual chemistry with like deep spiritual connection. Yeah. Mm. you know the excitement yeah the excitement mm. and it's just and so it's just disney it's just disney stuff that we've been fed all our lives that i should have long grown up grown out of but part of me hasn't you know the idea that if you meet someone and just go oh wow i got all these feelings that must mean that must be something that really is meaningful mm. is happening and that i can sense that they're like a good person they're right for me no and it just means mm. you really fancy them, which is fine, but it's just like, just know what that feeling is. That you just really, really fancy the person. So what do you mean apply more logic? it doesn't mean logic. that they're a nice person. Um, I don't necessarily apply more logic, but just give them time, just time to get to know someone. Because once I got to know them, I found that they weren't the person I was imagining. And actually, what's really interesting, there's two things which also um, ramped the stuff up, which was um, they he works at the place where my parents met and um, where they were working when they met. And um, they're married 52 years last week and very happy. So, so that seemed kind of meaningful. Yeah. And um, also... They look like someone I knew when I was at university who I really liked, who was kind to me. So I projected that personality onto them. So in my mind, I was imagining that they were them somehow. Yeah. And so like, and so it's just like, yeah, getting real with ourselves, isn't it? Getting real about what's actually happening. And it's the same in mm. work. It's the same in, in business about, you know, we talk a lot about um, what did I expect to happen? What did I think was happening here? And and what Buckers was saying at the beginning about, you know, um, being angry and feeling let down. Well, that's just to do with expectations and it's the same in work. You know, what was I expecting to happen when I started this business and what has happened and why did I expect it? Like looking at the evidence and trying to sort of be pragmatic and try not to be angry because then we don't learn, our, don't learn the lessons. If I just turn around and say, oh, God, the guy stood me up, you know, you know, he was he's bad. He, you know, well, it's. 
it's not it's not it doesn't you just don't learn the lesson do you, you just think no. well, he's and you can't control that either can you what can you control is your response yeah how, how you, yeah how you how process it and and also how much you can um keep it the right size keep it in context because in the long run you know the world is burning and getting stood up is not the end of the world i was in a lovely hotel and i was you know had a lovely place to stay and also i had a new compost thermometer which um was the first thing that came to mind when he didn't show up i was thinking oh Maybe I'll go home early and find out if my compost is heated up to the to the optimum temperature already using my new compost thermometer. So um, who needs a Volkswagen? I know oh, it shows exactly. it shows some kind of progression. But in in work, it's the same thing, isn't it? Fine tuning. You know your your journey from where you did work to where you do work. Everyone loves the story of like I worked there and I hated it, and now I knew my dream was always to do this, and now I do it, and I'm happy. That's what we want to hear. It's like mm. the Disneyland stuff, you know. Like I met, you know, I met my prince, I met whatever. But actually, life is just incrementally trying to notice what you do like and what you don't like, and move shuffle towards things. Definitely, you know? and and I mean, I think that is true. I think that I'm so happy. I earn like. 10% or something 20% of what I did in my old job and have a, have to have a different lifestyle as a result and I'm, I am responsible for a lot more and working hard and have stress but it is so much more rewarding but that hasn't been a night and day process it's not well an overnight yeah, process exactly. it wasn't like this is what happened it's like a few years of and I think what what I think you don't necessarily need to be running a company to do this either. You could do it in any sort of career. It's like just kind of taking control of what you are working on, what you are good at, what you like, what you feel yes. rewarded by, you know, work, identifying a company that reflects that, a culture that reflects that, that you want to work in or roles and stuff like that. Self-awareness, isn't lot, it? And there's, again, there's a lot of talk around this in, my women's communities because a lot of us I discover have this kind of hangover from the patriarchy saying unless it hurts it's not work you know unless it's hard you know I work really hard like I crunch rocks and that's how I earn money and if it's kind of something where you're in flow and you're enjoying it and you're creatively stimulated it's somehow mm. not work and so then we we pick up sort of guilt around that that we feel a bit guilty that we don't have to go and do those things anymore and I think sort of letting go of that stuff is an is another way that we kind of actually become a lot more productive when we do the things definitely. that come naturally and we're curious about definitely challenging those beliefs but like yeah which are which can be quite intuitive so you have to get a bit counterintuitive don't you I completely agree it is like you are at your best when you are in flow and part of being in that flow state is in being happy is kind of a sense yeah. of contentedness that is yeah. like goes against what we expect real productive hard work to be about. Yeah. The um, one of the challenges that you come up against in your business is um, the conversation around um, cultural appropriateness and gentrification and the London problem. So I don't live in London anymore, but I lived in an area for a long time, which became gentrified while I was living there. I lived in, in Borough for 15 years. And um, it was so interesting observing my response to those changes. You know, they had a, um, Neil's Yard was there, you know, and their knee sop or whatever. And first of all, I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't know better. I just rubbed my hands together and I thought, oh, goody. 
-hmm. And then later on, as I became older and I, I lived in Soho, we had, I saw the effect of that sort of process happening in Soho, but it was kind of on speed, you know, it's just like, it was like the air has been cleansed in a way. Mm -hmm. So where you are in Homerton, there's, there's, you know, you, there's sensitivity around that, isn't there? Absolutely. This is such a good question because this actually is the crux of the way I suppose we are doing things and part of our differentiation versus other kind of workspace providers. And I guess the first thing to say would be that we acknowledge that we are going to be probably a gentrifying force in a neighborhood. We're taking on, we're actively looking for real estate that probably is has been vacant for a long time or is at risk of being vacant and we're turning it into something productive and useful for the neighborhood. But, uh, you know, part of that is that we're introducing something new and there, there is a role that we're playing. In order to mitigate the kind of insensitivities of that, there's like two things, I think. The first one is around, um, and there are lots of different ways of, um, I suppose, defining gentrification and people have different ways of it. But the best understanding that I have learnt of it is it's about... Um, uh, gentrification is almost when products or services are existing in a neighborhood that can only be afforded and are only um, identified by a specific cultural group that has more privilege than others. So it's like, how do we open our services out to as broad a demographic in the neighborhoods that we are as possible? And there are two ways of doing that. One is around the pricing of our services and products. And the second is around what products and services we're offering and the kind of like you say the cultural appropriateness or like I suppose the cultural like how people culturally identify the space and if they feel welcome like it is a place for them and about them so we've created a kind of neighborhood strategy and we've started applying some of it um, to our existing pilot site in Homerton and then we'll be developing it across the other sites that we're opening in the next 12 months in areas in London but we want to be in places that are um, dense urban residential communities that by nature are going to have some certain challenges, We're going to have different communities that are differentiated or there's gaps that exist on socioeconomic terms and cultural terms. And it's like, how can art be a place that doesn't alienate specific groups and particularly those groups that are more marginalized. So in the case of Homerton, yeah, like, um, we've looked at what are the barriers to co-working typically and like, you know, price is one of them. So we have like low income memberships. We actively also have memberships that support people that are making change in their community and are doing some great work at the grassroots twice a week. Um, Cause we identified that, we, you know, particularly young black people in Homerton um, face stigma and specific, there is a big socioeconomic gap between um, young black people and young white people at school and so we run a homework club um, actively working with organizations that work with young black people in Homerton uh, to provide space for free for 17 to 25 year olds to access the space and then part of the way that we manage all of this is that regardless of what people are paying to act um, access the space everybody's treated exactly the same and there's the same customer experience and the same membership experience for everybody that accesses the space but you know obviously we're then commercially priced for the majority of our members um but you know we share with them the work that we're doing um for everybody and you know it's got <clears throat> we can't just uh 
claim an inclusive culture without creating expectations of our members as well to uphold that how how can that business model work in in with london rents how how does that look on pay-per-view is that do you have to you know plug it with government grants or is your business model just based on subscriptions and payments well it's just based on subscriptions and payments but like the way that we operate art club anyway is that we try we've created a low cost base so unlike other co-working businesses or workspace businesses or clubs that raise a lot of money spend you know millions fitting out a space on the refit on refit and then have to charge extortionate fees in order to make that money back um my business partner caro is an architect and designer. So we manage all the architecture and design in-house. It's really function-focused. It's beautiful, but it's still low-cost. We use low-cost, durable materials. Um, and, you know, it's it's um, simple and kind of fun and good value space that still is comfortable. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not saying, okay, there's also a ping-pong table and a slide that takes up half of the space, and therefore we're paying rent for that space for a ping-pong and slide made to of, exist. Made of a brass, a brass slide made yeah, by um, exactly. an, an Austrian designer in 1957. Exactly, or a Fabergé jacket potato, you know, in the corner, or things like that. There's not, there's, it's not... There's not too much. At the Groucher, they've probably got one. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps they do. But it's like the the idea behind this is like if we maintain a low cost base, there there is still a very sustainable and cash generative business model, but Great. still charging memberships that are less than, um, you know, the price of an office or a desk typically in London. The average desk price in London is something like uh, is over £600 per individual, which is just sort of crazy and so art club always aims to be to definitely have memberships that start around a hundred pounds a month where i live you can rent a, a two-bedroom house for that in a month okay well it's so, so interesting isn't yeah. it just not i'm not suggesting you should no. <laughs> although it'd be lovely to have you in the neighborhood yeah the, um but what's interesting is that, you know, in London, it's just like a different country, like all the financial models, all the business models, you know, it, it's just, you have to factor in, it's all just completely different from the rest of us. Definitely. And we're also, I suppose, as a business that exists within sort of the real estate world, we're not going for like, we're not competing for really characterful, big ego buildings. Uh, either yeah, we're looking yeah. really to work um and to utility yeah to, for it's utility. About utility it's about utility but also we'd really like to be occupying real estate that is <laughs> that's london that's, sound that's isn't it that's the sound of london that's, really. um, it, that's not that's the spud you like delivering going to barker's place <laughs> exactly exactly it is but we're occupying real estate that would otherwise probably be vacant so we're not competing for really expensive rents in Soho. We're looking at ground floor, small residential spaces, repurposing the high street, really. The, um, when I lived in Soho, I got a kind of a, a first-hand view of what it all meant because um, round, round the corner from us, there was a little parade of old shops and there was a couple of restaurants that had been there a long time and there was a young couple that we knew. The guy was a French chef 
and married and they and they made a little French restaurant and it was so lovely and there was about 20 seats and they just have a blackboard and that they'd make whatever they made and you'd go in and have a plate of food for like 11 quid or something it was really sociable and lovely and they were really a part of the community for a few years and then um APC moved in across the way and um they had paid <clears throat> over twice what the regular rent was and because of that because they had done that it then it met, then meant that the other landlords on the other side of the street could could defend a price double which made the business not viable and that whole i walked past this i walked past this parade the other the other week when i was in london and um all of them are gone now and it's just all you know highly financed vc financed retail now along that whole that whole row and it's um I mean, it's 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 a tough it's a tough nut to crack, and and coming in sideways and saying, yeah, well, it doesn't have to be a Georgian building, and it doesn't have to have a brass letterbox, and it doesn't have have to have exciting layers of peeling paint with an interesting patina, you know, exactly. that all those places are looking for, because that's why they move into poor areas because of the the characterfulness, and it's almost faux utility, isn't it? So it's like um. They're harking back to a bygone era with stripped floorboards and um, Regency sort of shop fronts that are all, all peeled off and heavy doors. But it's not real utility. Real utility, yeah, is um, a ground floor in a block of flats with, um, um, you know, double glazed windows. Exactly. They're cultivating like a higher value for something, right, that prices out the majority of people. And it just makes that real estate, yeah, inaccessible really for people who live in the neighborhood. And I think what we're doing at every point is trying to look in the opposite direction. What part of your job do you like best? Uh, well, working with um, my team, like learning from them, coaching them. Yeah, without a doubt. I, uh, I need to watch out to be a bit more logical rather than too emotional. I think that's what I've learned. I've done, yeah, some personality profiling or leadership profiling. But that means that yeah, I feel most rewarded by working with working with people, particularly yeah, amazing team of people. And tell us about your plans because at the moment you have one site in Homerton, but we do. over this next year things are changing for you. Yeah, over the next year we're opening at least three more sites in uh, various places across London. So similar kind of similar neighbourhoods in the sense that they're outside of Zone One. Um, Zone, zones two and three dense urban residential places um and yeah we'll be opening some more ground floor club ground floor neighborhood neighborhood work clubs very soon and the design and architecture will will make it feel like it's the same i think yeah it will do although we'll be working as well with local suppliers and engaging the local community to inform what we're creating um but it will be yeah so Caro is Swedish, so I guess the the design is like is very Scandinavian. Lots of plywood, simple muted colours, functional. How have you um, funded all of this? Um, private investment. So Ray, that's what took the longest time initially, and took us a really long time to get off the ground. Was um, finding people that believed in the idea and could see the opportunity. It was been a lot easier with this investment round because I think the pandemic proved a lot of 
the trends that we could see anyway, like that, you know, people did want to work remotely, but the home wasn't the ideal location for remote working. Um, so, and also having proved that our model works through a pandemic with like huge headwinds to the business plan, uh, also made it easier to raise money this time. But we have, yeah, we've got a lot of uh, all angel investors, so lots of small investors. Um, Did it make it easier to tackle that because you'd had some idea of the investment world before? Um, that's a really good question, but I don't think I was clever enough to even apply much of that knowledge. There was a network, I suppose, and there were people I could speak to. Yeah. Um, but I think I didn't ever really fully understand a kind of balance sheet and management accounting and things until I was having to build the model myself, even having looked at so many annual reports and reviewed them and obviously understood how the company that I was working for was performing. I think until I was actually creating it for myself and for something I passionately kind of believed in and was committed to. And also P&Ls and cash flows made by an accountant have got so much information in that it just looks like um, one of those Where's Wally books. Yeah. When I look at it, it's just like, oh, wait, you know, where is it? Or a plate of spaghetti when you have to look through all the spaghetti and see if you can see the, you know, those those mind tricks. It's like a mind trick. It bamboozles me. Whereas if you just create a simple cash flow um, yourself that is meaningful, it's actually fascinating to model it and to think, right, actually, if we didn't, if the rent was this, how does that number at the end change? You know, if we have three staff or four staff there, what does it actually look like? It's like making a little machine and you can change, you change the buttons and it's, and, you know, modeling like that is a really fun thing to do and learn. And it's not that hard. And I would encourage, you know, anyone to to believe and understand that they can do that with not that much help. Exactly. Um, and yeah, it's, it's much better than handing that stuff over and just making sprawling spreadsheets that just don't make any difference because you can have huge mistakes in them and not even notice as well. Yeah, exactly. Like really big ones, really big ones. Definitely. Like just, you know, I've, no. I've had that. I've handed things over to an accountant before and then I've been in investor meeting. They say, why is it that in um, year four you spend half a million pounds on paperclips? You're like, hmm. Yeah, exactly. And you need a glossary to understand all of the terms and everything. Exactly. It's not intuitive. It's better just to keep control of it, you know, and just Mm -hmm. and and understand it and get on top of it now. When are you going to have to fund again? Um, Probably in the next 12 months. It just depends on, uh, at the moment, we're building a pipeline of properties that we want to and locations that we want to go into. So uh, the sooner we have that pipeline, the more properties we can find the sooner we'll, yeah, we'll raise money to open more. Sounds exciting. I'm really, I'm really, I haven't visited yet, but I will, I will soon. Yeah, I'd Maybe, love to um, have Maybe we'll you. have some kind of um, real work. Be wonderful. Jacket potato yeah, session. I can promise you, yeah, some very good jacket potatoes if, if you'll come and, uh, come and spend the day at our, <laughs> yeah. We don't serve jacket potatoes if, yet in our canteen, but maybe we will. If people are in Homerton, they can come and have a look around and get to know you. If they're not in Homerton, but they're interested in the project in general, how can they keep up with what you're doing? So they can register for more information via our website, which is arc-club.com. They could also email hello at arcclub.com with any questions, particularly if they're interested in uh, an art club for their area of London. And also... I feel like you need to plug your newsletter. 
Yes, actually. So that's where you it's can really register good. for the newsletter it's really online. Good. Yeah. Have we featured you yet, Fleur? I feel like we need to... Uh... No, but you're welcome to. I'd be delighted to. Yeah. I think it's an excellent. I, I'm I'm into newsletters. You know, the real work has been such a learning curve. I was quite anti newsletters because I thought, oh, they're always salesy. But when you get a good one that gives you good content, it's an absolute joy. And yours is a, a treat. Can cans have got a lovely one. Yeah, when you have a good one, it's fun. Yeah, there's not too much information. I think is key as well, isn't it? Just a couple of things. It can't feel like a job to do to yeah. have to read it. No, we exactly. never need more jobs. More time and outside. they can sign up on the website. Yeah, you can register for our newsletter on the website. And that also keeps people updated on what's happening at our uh, new sites that are opening, offers that we have, new spaces. Yeah. Great. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being our guest. We got there in the end, Hannah. We did, Fleur. Thank you. And thank you so much, Buckers, for all your help and back and forth, sending me a microphone. <laughs> and for editing out all the motorbikes afterwards. <laughs> I'll do my best. Going up and down the Clapton Road. Yeah. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Lovely to speak to you. That's the end of this week's episode of the Real Work Podcast. If you want more from me before the next episode or you'd like to learn more about real work, you can find me on Instagram and YouTube where I share experience and advice for women who want to work and earn on their own terms. My Instagram handle is at doreal.work and on YouTube it's realwork, all capitals, all one word. Please rate and review this podcast if you know how (laughs) and tell people about it. It all helps. Thank you for being here. See you next time. Great, another episode in the bag. And this time with sponsorship. We're a proper grown-up podcast now. No, we're really rolling. It's such a good feeling that people want We've to got another one. pay. I know, they want to get behind. Yeah. <laughs> Real money. Real money to be associated with our brand. It's fantastic. And next week we've got another one. And then I've got a maybe for episode three. So I'm chuffed. I've just got to make some more calls and keep asking around, you know, gather the momentum. We're getting there. It's really good. Um, how are things going with yours? Yeah. Um, yeah, podcast is doing well. We also have um, managed to secure some sponsorship. I didn't know that. Well, it's just, you know, it's just just a kind of new thing. I've been keeping it kind of on the down low. It's, you know, our, our next series, which we're... I thought you were really busy. Me. It's quite hard. It's taken me a while. Yeah, it was amazing. I just we just got um, an, an email from this company who said they were interested and um, had a chat with them. And yeah, they're going to sponsor uh, four episodes. They just approached you, someone you didn't know. Mm, yeah. Well, that's 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 really good. Congratulations. Thank you, Fleur. Shall um, shall I do the jingle now? Shall I? My jingle. Put it on. If you want to make a podcast that your audience will adore, but the thought of making it yourself terrifies you to the core, then you know who to call. Producer Buckers, she knows just what to do. Producer Buckers, 
to make your podcast dreams come true. She used to work in radio where she was poorly paleo, a dab hand and audio. Find producer Buckers on Instagram at decibel underscore creative or click the link in the show notes. Come on, everyone. Producer, producer Buckers. If you want to hire the best producer, producer Buckers, just put it to the test. Producer, producer Buckers. Buckers, just press record and she does the rest. Producer Buckers.